What's going on, everybody? Uh, so this week is going to be a little different. Uh, I do not have Jake with me. It's going to be Phil filling in. And uh, this episode, we're going to be joined by Zach Lofman um, to talk about crypto and some South American rear fang colubrids and other cool stuff. Uh, so just a quick shout out to all our sponsors. Uh Steve Snakeshuary, Venom Hot Sauce, and MB Cages and Exotics. So if you want some awesome hot sauce that goes to an awesome cause, please hit up Steve. If you want awesome cages, you want awesome racks, please hit up Sean. Uh, great sponsors. Check them out. And enjoy episode 94 of THP. This is Jacob Ross with JLB Morelia. This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. You're listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast. Enjoy. Bust into it. Um, here we are. Pop it like it's hot. I am. <laughs> I got my coffee. I got my cigar. I'm ready to go. I'm prepared. I made a Dragonmore 12, man. What are you drinking, Zach? <clears throat> I'm drinking a Sprite. Oh, nice. nice. I'm in my office at school, so oh, I yeah, can't be drinking anything. <clears throat> you, so you're not you're not like every professor I ever had where they just pull out the bottle of scotch from the top drawer? I don't. I that's my secret. That's <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah. Anywho. They give the people the most stressful jobs, and they're like, yeah, you can't drink. Sorry. Yeah, this is a pretty stressful one at times. I'll fully admit to that. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll we'll if anybody wants to hear about how Zach got into snakes and all that stuff, he talked about it on Joe's podcast from the ground up. So we'll kind of forego that. Okay. And we'll just get into like real quickly. Uh, you're a professor. You're a doctor, correct? Yes. He is a doctor. Um, turn some levels down here again. Jeez. This is a house of learning doctors. <laughs> this is a house of learning doctors. Yeah. Uh, Those so kind of doctors. where do you teach and sort of what is your focus as a professor and academic? Um, so I teach at West Liberty University. It's a small liberal arts school in northern West Virginia. And uh, I, I do a lot of things here. I'm basically the organismal, one of the organismal biologists, but I do, um, I mean, I'm the coordinator for our zoo science and applied con major, which is pretty cool. And then I do the uh, graduate program. I'm one of the co-directors for it. So I have a lab full of graduate students and undergrads. And I'm a crayfish biologist. That's what brings in the money. But then when the zoo science thing came to be, I I got to head back to one of my main loves in life, which is herpetoculture, and I haven't looked back since. Righteous. Love it. He's the original crawdaddy. Yep. He's got some named after him. We talked about it on Snakes and Stogies one night, I think. Yeah, pretty pretty awesome. That is awesome. Are we recording now? We are recording. Okay, sorry, yeah. man. Yeah, no. Yeah, right. you'll you'll learn that Justin just throws I'm, you baptism on fire. You know. Yeah, I thought I made hey, it clear. <laughs> I thought it was obvious. All right. <clears throat> no. Like Joe Rogan, I just I like always it, I always it, assume that I'm being simulcast somewhere with Justin's world. Yes. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, no, that's that's the deal. And um, I've been doing, I, I kind of have a dream job in a way, which is I get paid to teach people about herpetoculture. 
And yeah. I kind of had to pinch myself that I, I, I have if my 19, 20 year old self knew that I would be doing what I'm doing now, <laughs> you know, it would be pretty damn excited. But I also you know, fully admit that there's people that know a hell of a lot more than me. Um, and that's why I like to do podcasts and, and I pretty much I'm, I'm starved for content. So anything I can find where I can learn something and then you know teach it to my students, I do it. So. That's awesome. Yeah, and I guess we can yeah. kind of jump into the, that first because I think that's kind of the lowest, it's like the least amount of information to, to unpack this episode, but the, you, you teach a herpeticulture class. Yes. Which is like when I, you told me about that because we were talking about that in the magazine, it was like, what do you teach? Like what is the what is the curriculum <laughs> for that kind of thing? Cause okay. I feel like most people hear it and they're like, why, how, what? Like, yep. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. Technically, it's called um, herpetology and herpetoculture, and I actually teach two of those courses. I teach one for graduate students, um, which is way more intense, and then I do one for uh, undergrads. And it's it's part of our Zeus Science curriculum at Westwood. So the way that I set the class up is the the lecture part of the course is kind of your classic herpetology class. Um, so we go over all the Extant or living reptiles, all the major um, orders and, and you know, families and all that kind of good stuff. And we talk about natural history and right. evolution, systematics. Um, and then since this is part of our zoo science major, I throw in little tidbits here and there on care and husbandry. And in the lecture, we focus mainly on conservation. Uh, so what are called ex situ and in situ conservation programs. So like mm -hmm. where like a great example would be what Memphis Zoo does with the Louisiana pine snakes. Right. So you're you're breeding them in human care, and we talk about that, and then we talk about reintroduction and how you have to have a genetic management plan. And it's not just raising snakes and letting them go. There's actually a whole lot of science that goes into it. Yeah, they were talking about right. that in the uh, Abroni Alliance talks the other night. Like, yeah. You know, not only is it rearing and captive breeding to save, you know, have like a, a captive population of something that's disappearing, but also like, you know, Abronia have this sort of myth behind them that they're venomous yep. and dangerous, and so it's teaching the locals in their range. Like, they're completely harmless. I mean, they do bite. It does hurt, but they're not going to kill you. So it's exactly. it's a combination of, like, the internal and external, you know, when yeah. it comes to so this. So we do that pragmatic boots-on-the-ground conservation. We talk about how that goes down for all reptiles mm -hmm. all over the planet. And then in lab, that's where the class kind of shifts from a normal herpetology class. And the lab is all herpetoculture. So nice. Um, all the students have to do a project. And uh, some uh, the projects that we do, for instance, this semester, even with COVID, I figured it out. I have a grad student who's looking at choice in um, colubrid snakes in, in human care. So we have these little... We have 10-gallon aquaria, and we have hides in them, and we basically have a side that's naturalistic and then a side that is what we call sterile, so newspaper, hide, water bowl. Uh -huh. And, you know, there's the kind of epic rack versus naturalistic debate. And um, Oh, yeah. What, you know, that debate as a scientist, I hear people kind of go to their tribes, and I always sit back and think, just let the snakes tell us. Like, wh right. why do we have to have an opinion? Let's make this a data-driven exercise. So. We're doing that. And so for the undergrads are going to be watching videos and doing ethograms and seeing if there's certain behaviors allied with a certain husbandry technique. And then another project we're doing this semester is um, there's a zoo 
who's uh, going to be breeding snake neck turtles. Um, and they need to know who's related to who. And we have the capabilities of doing that genetic analysis here. So that would be an example of an applied conservation project that involves a zoo. So we're basically wow. doing paternity right. tests on these snake necks so that the zoo knows who to breed with who. And then those babies from that breeding will ultimately go back to where they're from and be released. So, See, wow, and that's, that's neat because so. that's, that's like actually practical things that yeah. if they were in that field, they would be doing that kind of thing. Exactly. You know. we're, we're, I'm all about pragmatism. I don't, as an ecologist, I'm very boots on the ground, get dirty, and theory is important and it drives science, but it, you can totally go off into the weeds and get bogged down in that when, you know, you just need to be out in the field gathering the data. Yeah. So they do that project. And then the other thing that we do in the class is we actually have like three hour lectures once a week. And we have a, we just did substrates, bioactivity and plants last night. Um, nice. We do lights. So we'll do UVB, UVA, UVC, the controversies with it. We talk about, we do go over journal articles so they know, um, kind of the background behind it. Well, we do, I do a thing on feeding and the different nutritional qualities of birds versus mice versus rats versus insects versus frogs. We do cycling, uh, um, reproductive biology, uh, pretty much everything that you would do as a herpetoculturist. We, I tried to get a lecture in, and then this is where podcasts and your magazine become absolutely critical to me because I'll grab any content. I don't care what it is. If it's good, I'm using it. So I have people listening to NPR podcasts and I have people listening to your podcast. And, um, oh. I gave them a link to your magazine and said, you got to do a review on some of these articles. And then oh, I gave them links to like journals and said, you got to do reviews on these articles. So I, you know, content is content is the way that I view it. So by the That's end fantastic. of it, the guys, the kids know evolution, they know natural history, they know conservation, and they know care. And it's kind of all wrapped up. Yeah. And for the graduate students, it's that. It's just bump it up three or four more levels of intensity, and that's what they're doing. And then are these are these classes like in your undergrad? Is it like 15, 20 kids, or is it like an actual lecture hall oh, with like three hundred students? It's definitely not three hundred. Um, okay. The most I've taught this class to, uh, I, I had a class once that was pushing thirty. Um, this semester, I have a nice number. I have 18 kids in there. So, nice, nice. Yeah. So it's a good, you know, and and the thing about our our college is that, you know, a lot of people call me Papa Loafman or Dr. Zach. Like, it's very laid back. We just want people to learn. That's all we're about. That's great. Yeah. And then and the other more, thing. I'll go for it. You, Sorry. I was going to say, you get more. Like, I remember being in college, and I had classes that were maybe 15, 20 people, and then I had classes that were, like, 200 people, and there's no there's no personal interaction with the no. actual professors or even the TAs. And, like, you know, you want to get that 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 personal effect. That, that's really one of the best ways that I learned. Oh, yeah. And, and we're – it's very pragmatic. Um, and all the, the kids know me. You know, with COVID, it's different because I got to do everything through Zoom because we're not allowed to be close to each other which is interesting. But even then, I mean, I, I talk to my students all the time. In fact, I, I bumped into one right before this podcast and was talking to her. So the other thing I make the kids do is um, they take all that herpetoculture that they learned and then they have to build a vivarium <laughs> from the ground up. So they make a, a plan, they, they make a schematic, they have to say what herp it's for. 
They do substrate mixes based off the natural history of the animal. They have to make a diet plan. And then at the end, everybody brings their vivs in. We put them in a classroom and then the class judges them. And then I judge them. And then you get a grade that way. So that's great. It's, it's very, very hands-on. And I absolutely love teaching this class. Well, what's the ratio oh. of, of <clears throat> like folks that are there out of curiosity and then the people that are there because they're already into that? Does that make um, any sense? Oh, no, it makes sense. Are you asking, like, how many kids in Zooside do we have that are herp-oriented? Well, I just I think about some of the classes sure. I took in college, and, uh, like, there were people uh, – let me think of one in particular. Like, abnormal psychology. Like, that was a very interesting class to me. When I took that, I was excited. But you know there was kids in there that were like, well, I have to take a psych class oh, of some I gotcha. sort. I might as well be this. <laughs> yeah. I definitely have kids in the class that have that, that when they when they start into her, they have no interest in reptiles or amphibians or very little interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're going to school to be a, a, a zookeeper, or conservationist to work with you know, wolves and mammals and birds and all that. And I I take great pride in converting them to the herb side. Um, <laughs> and I have I've definitely taken quite a few, uh, and kind of redirected them into herpetology and some of them have actually like taken off and run i have one um student who graduated and she's at a sea turtle center in uh south carolina and she didn't know she liked oh, sea turtles nice. so we talked about them i bet that's, you that's awesome. up in Charleston. Uh, yeah i think yeah, so yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah i know which one you're talking about. and i i have another uh student who's now talking to me about grad school um and doing herpetology work um so no, I, I yeah, there's been quite a few. We'll just we'll just leave it at that. That's awesome. <laughs> how many yeah. students, uh, you know, with the with the Viv projects and stuff? How many students are like, you know what? I already have, you know, a, a girdle tail lizard at home, or I already have a crested gecko at home. I'll just use that. Like, do they ever try that, or is it have oh, to be oh, yeah. something fresh? Okay. No, um, it's kind of funny because the first time I was doing, I was teaching the class. You know, I let the students know, hey, here's what I think we're going to do. And they actually interpreted it as Dr. Loafman's going to have us go out and buy a herb. And oh. <laughs> of course I would never, ever do that because we don't want people buying these things that, that have no interest in them. Yeah. Bunnies and now Easter. I have to like send out multiple emails all through the summer. You do not have to buy a reptile or amphibian for this assignment. That being said, you know, you always have the, the student who was kind of on the fence whether they were going to get a crested gecko or yeah, they were already snake. toying around with the idea of it. Yeah. yeah, and so they, you know, they'll they'll do that, and then they end up through the course of the semester creating this amazing enclosure for it. Uh, and then I've also had plenty of people um, who had reptiles and amphibians, you know, prior to the class, and they're it, they'll talk to me oftentimes beforehand and be like, "Can I start early?" I'm like, "Well, let's kind of pump brakes a little bit." Um, Many uh, a ball python, corn snake, bearded dragon has gotten one hell of a mansion out of that assignment. So, that's for sure. I mean, what do they so, do yeah. with them after the after that's done, though? Like the ones that aren't um, doing it, they just like, cool. Here's a vivarium. Have fun with it. We quite a few people donate them back to us. We here at the the university, we have our own collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sitting at about two hundred to two hundred and fifty reptiles right now. Wow. Um, and some of the students, you know, they'll come in and they'll basically say, I don't, I don't have any intentions of building a vivarium because I don't have any of these animals. So what we'll do is we'll go, we'll plan ahead and we'll order a big PVC enclosure 
and then we'll upgrade one of our animals, oh. and then their assignment is to upgrade our enclosure. And That's we, smart. Um, That's great. That's great. Yeah. So we've so that way we're not like, you know, and, and we're not promoting people going out and buying things that have no business buying things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So this semester, I'm trying to think, we have um, we have a really large African bullfrog, who's getting a brand new viv, which is kind of funny because he's gonna burrow down into the cocoa bedding and never we're never gonna see him again. But he'll have a pretty house, I guess. Nice. Um, <laughs> it's the thought that counts. It's the thought that counts. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, we we have some redfoot tortoises, and they're getting a nice big new enclosure, um, build out of this. So. Yeah, it's cool. But we, we do that. And then the other thing is uh, we have I have graduate students. And the graduate students, I'm the only guy I know that has two grad labs, which is a little bit masochistic because running one grad lab will damn near kill you. But I decided crayfish lab is cool. I'll have another one. So I actually have a, a lab uh, that the Zoosite grad students are in. And it's the evidence-based herpetoculture lab, we're calling it. And everyone that's all the grad students in that lab are doing a master's thesis that's based entirely around advancing husbandry with herps. So that's, that's cool. where, yeah, that's where the cryptosporidium comes into play. I have a grad student who's working on that. I have a, a grad student right now who's doing um, target training with snakes and that and station training with snakes. And her, her thesis is blowing up. Um, it's, it's extremely badass. I've been more than impressed with what we're getting with that. Um, really? We're, yeah, we're training these baby water cobras, false water cobras, not true water cobras. <laughs> it's getting <laughs> uh, real. We'll put that clarification in there. And they're, uh, yeah, I was shocked at how quickly they learn. And we are working with Lori on that. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so she's part of that endeavor. Uh, I've got another guy who was a keeper at the St. Louis Zoo, and he's actually going to go back there. Um, next semester, but he's going to do a bunch of stuff with branids and how they think and, and how we can use how they think to better their husbandry. Um, and, uh, I think, I think that's it for now. Um, I had a couple people graduate too. Do so do I, do I have to wait to pick your brain on that whole false water Cobra training nonsense or do like, do I have to wait for that to come out <laughs> or can uh, we talk about oh, it? No, we, we can definitely talk okay. about it. Um, cause I've, I've kept them and I've had them for years and they're amazing species. I mean, hydrogenastis gigas specifically, yep. but I, I watch the intelligence and then I also watch the moronicalness of it. If that's even a word, yep. oh. <laughs> dumbest oh, snakes ever. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like the dumbest morons, but they will figure out how to do a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> so it's savants. Well, falsies are without question my absolute favorite snakes on planet Earth. I, nice. I, they're just, I, I just love them to death. And if you take that insanely ridiculous feeding response out of the equation, right? That moronicalness or whatever, whatever you call it, it kind of goes wet. They're just incredibly dumb around. Food. I mean, they they lose it. Right. And if you kept a falsy, you know. They will come. I mean, there, there are snakes that come rocketing out of an enclosure, and then there's falsies rocketing out of an enclosure. Yes. Uh, and um, what we've what we've done though is we, we've taken that and and well, if you think about it, these animals are learning very quickly that certain cues equal food, and they're all amped up. And as soon as those cues hit, boom, you get that predatory response. 
And if you kind of you take a step back and you take the snake out of the box and you put it into nature where it evolved, that makes a whole lot of sense because these yeah. guys are generalist carnivores where they occur and they're kind of an ecological generalist too. So they're kind of the snakey ver- snake version of a coyote is the way I always have thought about them. They'll basically hunt anything. Okay. And if you about a coyote, they have to know how to kill a rabbit, how to kill a grouse, how to kill a you know, bird that flies, how to kill a snake. Well, false water cobras kind of have that same response when it comes to their prey. And, and the, the literature from nature shows that. In human care, we're just presenting them with a dead rat. And they learned, because they were never taught not to do it, that if I come rocketing out and grab this rat, I immediately get it. But if you start tap training them, so basically the same thing you do with a big python and a hook, yeah. um, they quickly learn hook does not equal food. And that insane response goes away and we've actually diminished that behavior and if you present them with a target that has no food stimuli associated with it you get a lowered down version of that insane response that everybody knows but it's more of an alert like where's the food and they they learn they associate this blue ball in the case of our target means a mouse is coming and it's almost like watching a dog where, where you're, you train the dog and they like start, you know, their yeah, tail starts wagging and your back legs start going. Yeah. You can totally see these little baby snakes are like, the mouse is coming. It's coming. Where's it at? And <laughs> other snakes we have, when we do this, they just keep rocketing away, if that makes sense. That, really? You don't, you don't see that diminish, diminishment in that behavior. I don't know if diminishment's a word, but we'll go. Rock and roll. It is now. Um, what, are, what, are some of the, what are some of the other species that you've been trying? Um, the target training, we've, I personally have tried target training. I've got a bunch of IJ or sorry, IJs, Papuans, whatever the hell you want to call them. You can say IJ. You with can us. say Jake's whatever you want, here, buddy. It's whatever right, you're cool. comfortable with. Yeah, I, I first saw I'm them in the early guy. 2000s and they were IJ. Yeah, so I'm an IJ guy. I've target trained those guys and, and they, they see the target. They're ready to eat. If you know what I'm saying. Um, mm-hmm. I've done a little bit of target training at my house with the collection I have there. And, uh, I have some corn snakes there and a Slowinski's rat snake, same kind of Anthropus guys. They do the same thing, but the falsies are the only ones we've had that'll do this. And now it's gotten to the point where with our grad student, she's presenting the target and then basically trying to lead them via the target to a box. Cause the idea is with this, our theses have to have something to do with the zoo. Right. So, if you can target train an animal to recognize the target and then you can lead it into a box and cause it to station, you're doing some, you know, that that's what zoos do all the time. And what's really interesting about her work is that we have three different clutches of babies and not all clutches are created equal. So one clutch of babies is they're like Einstein's and they figured this out very quickly. One clutch of babies is there's, they get it. They take a little while. And then we have another clutch full of dirks, which just <laughs> don't know what the hell's going on. But that's kind of cool from an evolutionary point of view, because that shows that there's kind of inter yeah, you know, inter-individual variability in their ability to learn. And these both it's clutches are from genetic, the same parents? Potentially, which is cool. What was that? I was saying both clutches were from the same parents? No, we have three different clutches from three different lines, okay. if you will. Okay. So, sure. Yeah, so they're unrelated, and we're testing that too. So, Lori's helped us a ton on this. It's 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 an amazing you know project. That's what's happening to date. 
Uh, Michelle Williams is the student's name is doing it. And we're like hoping and praying that the snakes keep doing what they're doing right now. Um, so that the data set kind of ends up telling the story we have currently. And if it doesn't, that's fine. That's science. And then yeah. we're going to write this thing up. But yeah, it's, fantastic. it's been a lot of fun. Well, that's the one it's thing. A lot of fun. Yeah. Falsies I've always heard. Everyone I've, I've ever talked to that's kept them. They all say the same thing. Like they are the smartest snakes they've ever dealt with. Yep, they're up there. Um, I've, I've never kept any. I've been tempted to, but I've never got my hands on any. Um, but I mean, what is it a about? A lot of people. Oh, go ahead. A lot of people compare them to dry marken. Uh huh. Um, or dry marshan, however you want to say that. Uh, we have both here at West Live. I, we have yellowtails. We actually produced yellowtails last year. Which is cool. Nice, nice. Um, and we have blacktails. And then we have the army of false water cobras, thanks to me. And <laughs> love it, love it. Without question, I am on team water cobra when it comes to intelligence. I have not kept indigos, so you know indigos are kind of the gold standard. Uh, but um, the falsies also, we have some evidence. I'm not going to say this like with a you know, stamp. This is the way it is. But we have evidence that they definitely know their keeper the false water cobras do mm -hmm. because mine are in my office here. I mean, I'm looking at them right now. Um, and they, I have normally, I have people coming in and out of my office all day long and they'll sit kind of watching things out of their hide boxes. They're in great big animal plastic, six foot you know, long by two foot deep by 18 inch tall mm -hmm. enclosure. But in the morning I'll come in the office um, and they're kind of out and they go to where I feed them. And they just sit there and wait. Uh, and for the longest time, I thought it's just because I'm the first person in the office. That's why they're going there. And they've learned. They get fed in the morning. Someone comes in. It's an associative thing. Mm -hmm. right. But what's been really cool is there was a time where I wasn't coming in until later in the day. Um, and we had video cameras on the snakes because uh, they were going to be laying eggs. And what I noticed is people were coming in and out of here all day long. And those the falsies were not going to where they get fed. But whenever nice. I would show up later in the day, I, I, I think they either kind of recognize my movements or they recognize my smell because snakes are so chemosensory. It would then immediately go over to the corner where they would get fed. Huh. Um, I feed my guys small meals frequently. I don't, I don't do the like medium rat or large rat once a week. They get weaned rats or rat pups and they get them like two or three times a week. So, you know, that gets back to that whole coyote thing, associative learning. They, they know this is where I've got to be to get, get prey. Um, and this large monkey is the one that gives it to me. So I'm going to go there, <laughs> and it's not the other ones that are coming, you know, this right, direction. Right. It's that one. So, yeah, with, with all that, being an ecologist and a natural historian and all that, I mean, they, they're just the ultimate snakes as far as I'm concerned. And I know they come with their downside. These things crap. And when they crap, I mean, they produce poos that were bigger than the poos my toddler produced. They're epic. <laughs> oh, and they, yeah. And they kind of spray them. And my office always smells bad, which is fine. <laughs> doesn't bother me. Limits the people that come in here, so it works. Um, but if you can get past that, um, I mean, and, and you have to, you must keep them in a ventilated enclosure. I tell everybody I'm not anti-rack, but I don't really feel like racks are good for false water cobras unless you're cleaning them up daily but they get so damn big yeah that you really don't have you know you got to put them in a rack that you keep adult boas or bloods or things mm -hmm. like that in so 
Every time no, I hear right. about false water covers, the first thing I think of is that video of Nigel Marvin getting just yes. absolutely annihilated by one. Like, literally yeah, oh, yeah. laughing his ass off while this thing is just chewing on him like freaking bubble gum. Yeah, and, and well, he, go ahead. Ever, I hate to say it, but have you ever been bit by one? I have been. Um, with the juveniles, I, I now, now here's something I will say about falsies. Uh, I, you know, I promote hooks with them. Um, the verdict, there's a lot of people, especially if you go on the false water cobra groups where you see people holding them, they got them up by their face and all that kind of good stuff. And what people need to remember is it is an epistoglyphus snake and you get bit and chewed by a large one. You you potentially have a problem. Um, and I don't ever let the chewing ensue. Uh, I don't understand why people do, um, but, you know, it is what it is, and I haven't had any kind of reaction, but that doesn't mean that my day is not coming. So yeah. when we interact with the little guys, little guys are a little bit manic. They, they'll, they bite everything until they learn, okay, you know, they're not going to kill me. Um, and I worry more about those little guys at times just tagging me over and over and over again when you're measuring mm-hmm. them or you're pulling them out of the egg box or something. Um, so I always wear gloves whenever I'm interacting with them. And then with the big guys, I just use a hook. And I'm, I'm happy to say I don't have any quote unquote aggressive snakes. Uh, and, and here at West Liberty, I have, we have eight large adults. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can't have a bad day. So, of course, you know, we just treat them with respect and, and that's the way it works. So, what, um, real quick before we transition, just because yeah. I, I love fall season, I've had them, I've had so many over the years. What do you do in those in those PVC cages for a water, like a, a bathing bowl or a tub or something? Oh, cool. Yeah, um, I use two different types of tubs. Uh, Walmart actually sells this little basin tub that's black. It's like $2.88. It's real cheap. Um, I use those for my sub-adults and up through the, the big adults. And then we, for the really big animals, we have some animals that are pushing eight feet. And, and weigh about nice. 12 pounds. Awesome. Um, so they're, they've got the dimensions of black-headed pythons. Good Lord. So, That's fantastic. Yeah. And they're not fat. They're just big. Yeah. Uh, for those, beasts. we use um, the hefty roughneck bins. And it's kind of fun because I love naturalistic enclosures, but false water cobras are, are definitely an animal that will challenge you on that because they're so active that they just demolish yeah. everything. Yeah that you put in there. And then when they go to the bathroom, if you try to do bioactive substrates and things like that, they just super saturate with nitrogen, phosphorus, and all the nastiness in their waste. Um, so I use a substrate mix that cypress setting with um, some peat moss. And then I actually heard this on a podcast with the guy, uh, Michaels, the guy that does black pearl with the dry, with the rebos. He used little wood pellets that you use with rabbits. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mix that into my substrate, and it actually works really well in absorbing and kind of clumping up their feces so that I can get it out of the, the enclosure. But, that makes yeah. sense. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good yeah. idea. Huh. Yeah, I so, feel like I've been preaching this a lot lately, but, like, the whole – the hobby in general, and I feel kind of confident in painting with a broad brush, but, like, rear fang stuff does not get taken seriously enough. Oh, no. Yeah. As a big totally. boiga guy, like it's the same thing. I see people holding them, putting them, you know, all up on their face and 
thinking it's cute and you see some of these monster melanota and cyania man and yeah like those things could seriously they could it could be very real well i mean i don't know if you've seen some of the bites that come from western hognose snakes yeah those too they're oh, yeah they can they can cause some pretty wicked dermatitis and and you know your, your lymph nodes can ex- not explode but they can definitely swell up quite a bit um and you can have quite a anaphylactic reaction to them um with the false water cobras, I have done a deep, deep, deep dive trying to find some bite case studies that kind of show the, the, the far end extent of what a bite could entail. And what's interesting is most of the, the, the publications about these animals will say that the, the nastiest side effects almost always happen and people that when they get bit completely freak out and have basically a stress response that then triggers an even deeper anaphylactic shock because the body, it, the person's basically, their homeostatic state's out of whack yeah. because they got so much cortisol running through their body. Um, right, right. But it's funny because, the, you know, falsies are big and they definitely cause you to swell and if that nigel margin... Mar- Nigel, Nigel margin. <laughs> margin, isn't that neat? Uh, you know I taught all day. He's on the margin, by the way. Anyway, uh, he actually swelled up quite a bit yeah. after the fight. And um, I think, like, if I recall, he was sitting there getting chewed on it, laughing, and he—I think he was like, yes. "I don't even know what species this is." Yeah, and I'm no. like, "What?" <laughs> and he's just yeah, laughing. But that's actually one of the worst bites on record. Uh, so. A lot of people will say that their, their bite is equal to a temper rattlesnake. Um, and I'm telling you right now, I would rather get build, bit by a million false water cobras than yeah, one timber rattlesnake. That seems like a yeah, good like stretch. Uh, but what, the reason why they, people say that is that they, the um, biochemistry of a temper is in their venom, they have these, this compound that's known as a metalloprotease, which is basically yep. a really heavy um, protein, and that's what kind of aids in the enzymatic effect. And when people have done biochemical analyses of the Duvernoy secretions of hydrogenastes, they have an equivalent gram for gram of metalloproteases equal to a timber rattlesnake. So that's where that comes from. But if you think about the venom delivery system between the two animals, it's drastically different. Mm-hmm. So, um, Yeah, but now, if I may, because obviously yeah. I'm not a doctor and I, I never honestly went to school for this. But, but just you are a venomous guy. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a venomous guy, but what I was going to say is looking at other predominantly cytotoxic species of rear fang colubrids, do you, you see like the cell destruction in a particular way to the point where I've had friends that got bit by, you know, gigas and, you know, they had no swelling at all, but their hand discolored because, you know, blood yeah. cells were dying or white, you know, white blood cells, red blood cells, all blood cells, whatever cells in general were dying. And, you know, they got massive discoloration and numbness. And then at the same time, you know, the body would combat it by, you know, giving them a fever or making them nauseous. And I don't, I don't, I don't know too many people that have been, by, that have been bit by cane breaks or timbers, but I feel like that's inconsequential to the other yeah. horrific damage that that, oh, God, you know, yeah. 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 No. I agree 100%. And in those individuals that actually have the bruising from the from the water cobras, right. what's actually happening there is kind of cool. I mean, it's not cool for them. That, that was <laughs> it's <brilliant>. still awesome. <laughs> but from a you know nerdy evolutionary point of view, right? In that situation, when the when the snake has bitten them, it, it's kind of the perfect 
fight, if you will. And what's happening is they are getting a direct dose of that Dubrinoid secretion. With most Hydrogenastes bites, what happens, and there's some publications that talk about this, is that they kind of do that maniacal bite, chomp, 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 chomp thing. Mm -hmm. And when right. they do the chomp, chomp, chomp thing, they're actually getting just as much you know, saliva and mucus in there as they are the Dubrinoid secretion. And so, in effect, it's diluting right. that, that compound. When they actually do the bite in a single chomp and those rear teeth go down in, and they're actually able to squirt, if you will, the secretions down into the tissue, and they get it down into the, the muscle, then those metalloproteases are actually able to do what they're supposed to do, and they start breaking down capillaries, and you get the you know, edema and all that kind of good stuff. Um, and that's why it drives me crazy when people have these things up around their head. <laughs> because if they oh, yeah. just so happen to see your nose and get those bangs in there, you're going you're gonna to look pretty funny for a couple days. Um, it's just because they have a tendency to bite and let go, we don't see those really nasty effects. Mm -hmm. Well, I, mean, I think I think that makes a lot of sense too because you see people that get bit by juvenile Gila monsters and it's a quick tap, real quick because yeah. you know the, the lizard isn't being defense is being defensive and not latching on like food. But then you get the people that actually get latched onto by Gila and it's a completely different thing. And you were saying that it's diluted in other mouth juices, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I just I see a lot of lot of parallels with Boiga, and you know, it like given because they've done studies on Boiga venom, and I think Nate at uh, <clears throat> M Toxins says they're they're doing even more, but uh, like they found that that the venom for Boiga is many 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 times more toxic to lizards than it is to yeah. mammals, and so like it's designed for that, and so yeah, like. It is crazy toxic, but it's also not aimed for sort of warm-blooded prey. But is there like what's the primary diet of these in, of of falsies in the in the wild where it would be more catered to something like that? They're yeah. eating <clears throat> primarily on um, other ectotherms. So there's actually been quite there's been there's a really awesome feeding study that had a big sample size, and these herpetologists went into museums and dissected animals, and then they used roadkill and kind of peeled them off the road and looked at what was in their stomach. And basically what these animals eat is when they become adults, anything they can overpower, they're, they're indiscriminate. In fact, one of the most frequently eaten things by adults were other snakes. Um, wow. So they were, but they were eating both rocks. They were eating other oh, wow. hydrogenasties. Uh, and whether they're, stumbling on these animals and they're dead and consuming them or they're actually like tangling with a bow props and killing it. That's unknown, but they're definitely eating those. They ate mammals. Um, they ate, um, cavies, which are related to Guinea pigs in South America. Uh, birds were rarely consumed, but if you think about it, they're not going to be encountering birds too frequently on the ground. So, right. Uh, and then lots of fish, amphibians, the juveniles primarily were feeding on, um, frogs, fish, uh, anything, you know, basically anything that they encounter. Uh, and so, uh, and, and they have a ravenous metabolism. Anybody that's kept a false water cover knows you give it, if you have your temperatures dialed incorrectly, you give it food, it's crap like 48 hours or less later. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So they eat a lot too. And they actually eat all the way up until they drop eggs, which is kind of interesting for people. Um, 
So, no, they're like I said, I'm a naturalist at heart, and these things are are just absolutely wonderful, you know, for someone like me. Well, you have awesome. like a running theme because you have the falsies, and then you have the Maseranas, and then you have the Baron mm-hmm. racers. So, like, what is the what's the focus on sort of the South American epistoglyphs? I have no idea how that happened. The kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's the focus. So, uh, back in 2016, when this whole major started, and uh, I realized that you know I'm going to have to do the deep dive, and I was developing our collection here. Um, I was trying to find like we, we all have our snake, right? If you know what I'm saying, like yours is bear drat snakes, as far as I know, and um, I'm sure Phil has his snake. So pygmies, I, sure. I <laughs> to find mine, if you will, and uh, I like aquatic thing, and I kind of stumbled in the water cobras. I thought that it was that you know this is going to be an extremely venomous, highly aggressive animal. I did my you know research and learned that's not quite the case. So I got them, and then my big thing is. I love to read about animals before I get them, and I will read anything and everything. And I knew about colubrids and their taxonomy, and I knew there was a group that was, I learned them as the Xenodontini, which was a subfamily off the colubrids, which included here in North America, things like ringnecks and hognoses. And then, you know, I just kind of stumbled in and realized that there's this whole group of snakes that's present in the Americas. They're, they're known as dipsatids. Um, and there was a lot of controversy as to whether they should be their own family or if they were a subfamily. Uh, so that kind of checked that nerdy box for me. Uh, and so I started reading about them and I realized they were really cool. And they were these ecological generalists that kind of lived a life in the habitats that I like. But at the same time, there were specialist species in there. And there were arboreal forms like barren racers and all the philodryas, mm-hmm. members of that genus. And then there were like king snake like dips added, which are the Mustaranos. Um, and then you have the, the coral snake mimics, like tricolor hognose snakes. And I just found myself reading more and more and more and more. And it all started with the water cobras. And then when I got the water cobras, I mean, they're just insane. And that crazy ass feeding response they have, I was hooked. I mean, they're, they're, they're very dramatic animals. And so, you know, they're, they're not boring to keep. And so I kind of went and thought, well, we can get hognose snakes. And then I got hognose snakes. And I'm not a morph person, but I, I love naturalistic vivaria. And a thing that's great about all these dipsatids is if you give them a naturalistic viv, they use it, which is really cool. Um, so if you have something like a Baron's Racer, which is one of these guys, and you set it up in a tall arboreal vivarium, and they're up moving through the branches all day long. Uh, and so you get rewarded for giving them, you know, enrichment. You do that with something like a a short tail and I have short tails. I've got all three species. You give them a great big viv, they're going to sit in the corner. (laughs) So as a keeper, you're rewarded with these things. And I really like that aspect of them. Um, And so I just slowly but surely, we acquired this collection and I have some here at the university and I have others at my house. Uh, And I, I, you know, and, and many of these animals, they, they have one or two advocates in herpetoculture, and that's it. Like, Musaranas are a great example of that. Yeah. Um, the, everybody knows the Moiruna maculata, which some people call the false Musarana. That's the one that's most common in um, captivity. Uh, most people know them for the pides. Uh, but right, right. the normal moosey is it's just a badass animal. 
And during the day, they aren't very active. But if you watch those things at night, they never stop moving. They're moving all the time. And I know king snakes kind of have a reputation for hitting their prey and making a really tight coil. But if you've ever fed a Boruna, they give a king snake a run for its money. I mean, they hit something and they create this really tight coil um, and they're ravenous. In fact, I actually had a moosey chase me across my office at home. I had <laughs> a rat and it dripped onto my foot and I had socks on and the moosey shot out of the viv and you know, I thought, all right, I'm going to get you back in there. And I'm like, why is this thing still coming at me? And the reason why it was coming at me is it smelled the rat on my foot. And I had to, like, literally jump up into my damn chair. And it was this little 20-inch snake. I mean, I find that amazing. So, um, but no, the, the dips added without question. They're my group. Well, that's so, awesome. Yeah, and the Museranas yeah. are kind of another one. Because I remember there was a point, I don't think they're as popular as they were, but there was a point not that long ago where people were buying them a lot you know the pides were sort of the hip thing mm-hmm. and i remember reading about them and people were like yeah they're a rear fang but i mean they don't really bite but at yeah. the same time we don't really know exactly like how toxic they are it was kind of it was very bizarre everyone's like it was like the new king snake hog nose mix where it was like yeah they're venomous, yeah. but they don't really they don't really do anything yeah no, they, famous last words yeah, yeah they do something um <laughs> They, they just are not prone to bite, but, but there have been a few people bitten and what now I'm not being critical, but one of my favorite things to watch, it's like watching a train wreck is when somebody gets bit by something and they decide that they're going to do a bite study on Facebook. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then they post like, this is me one hour after I got bit. This is me two hours after I got bit, like all that kind of stuff. You should just probably go to the hospital. Um, yep. <laughs> that should be what you're doing. But there was, there's a Facebook group for Mooseys, and there's actually a bite history on there of someone getting tagged by one of these things. And it was a feeding response bite, and it's, it gets a little serious. I mean, there's some massive edema, there's bruising, the lymph nodes are swelling. I mean, it's a full-blown venomous bite. Wow. Um, right. And so here at the university, only the graduate students work with them. And they're, we always put on, you know, long sleeve shirts. We have on leather gloves. Uh, we don't treat them like they're little king snakes. And their feeding response, you know, people don't have them as, as frequently as they have water cobras. They give a water cobra a run for their money 100%. Uh, I mean, like I said, I had one chase me across the room for crying out loud. So they get confused and you get tagged by them. It, it, it could be bad. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I mean, that's, the, same, the, the same goes for the, the file drives. You know, those, are, yes. those have been documented as being hotter than we originally thought yeah philodryas um or philodryas olfacernine there's there's a reported fatality with them um i've read some bite accounts that question whether that actually happened or not but it doesn't matter because it's a really it's not a good bite uh and then there's veridissima which sometimes shows up in the trade Mm -hmm. um and, and there's been a couple people that have been hit by those and they they had some pretty gnarly reactions. Um, so you just have to treat them with respect. That's all. And, and don't be booping snoots and putting them up by your head. That's just dumb. Right. That's all there is to it. So Yeah. It's just, I love like the, the rear fang stuff is just so interesting to me, especially when you look back in history and like, yeah, everyone thought that Thelotornis was no big deal. Everyone thought that, uh, you know, boom slangs were no big deal. 
And oh, yeah. we'll find out when someone dies over the course of like three days slowly that mm-hmm. yeah, these are actually pretty serious. Let's let's not. Yeah. It's like how many times I mean, do you have to learn I, that lesson before you realize like, yeah, these these are no joke. Hindsight, that boomslang paper was, you know, essential to science because there was a herpetologist that got bit and he documented the whole thing yeah. all the way up until like the last ten minutes of his death. Yes. Crazy. That was phenomenal. Yeah. Do you have any so plans anyway, for doing anything with Boiga, though? That seems like that's kind of out of the alley. Do you? Um, I have um, Sienna. Oh, Those okay. aren't here. <laughs> Those are at my house. I have a pair of them. Uh, Very cool. And I, I, you know, I do what good Boiga keeper, keepers do. It's like willful neglect. Uh, <laughs> set the viv up. I gave them their pothos yep. plants. They're upside down pots. I give them humidity. Um, and I just watch them. I don't really interact with them. They were... Like like most, Sienna, I had a captive-born pair. I had to do the mouse tails for freaking yeah. ever. <laughs> uh, it's the rite of passage, they, man. Yeah. Oh, when, when they – I mean, I consider that one of my greatest accomplishments as a scientist. <laughs> like, I dreamed <laughs> of life, and I got a freaking boiga to go from mouse tails to pinky. Like, that was I – mean, the, the amount of effort that went into that, Jesus Lord, but – but yeah, they're they're going to be old enough to to breed next year, and I'll be honest with you, there's part of me that's like, do I really want to clutch things I have to shove yeah, mouse tails down? Yeah. Oh yeah. So anyway, but no, uh, they're also an amazing snake to put in a naturalistic viv. Um, so the mine are mine are thriving in um, some AP enclosures that are you know, four foot by two foot, uh, and I I just love going into my my office at home where they're at at nighttime and they're out cruising yeah. doing their thing. They're just, they're just awesome. Yeah. Um, my female I comes out and basks dearly. pretty much every, every night. Yeah. I'll walk out and she's sitting there on her little perch right under her, her heat panel. The male, I kind of see him every now and then, but the female, she's out pretty regularly. That's funny. Cause with my pair, the male is the finicky one and the female, I mean, she's, she's rock solid. She's bigger. Um, she eats without question. Uh, the male, every now and then, I have to give him live, which is nerve-wracking as hell. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, is what it is. So. And I, it, may, it may be beginner's luck, but, I mean, so far, they're probably the easiest snakes I've ever bred. So. Yeah. I mean, I put them together. Oh, yeah, congratulations with, on the clutch. I saw Yeah, within, like, up. 25 minutes, man, they were locked up, and I left them in there for a couple of days, separated them, and then uh, put them back in for another day or two, and they had definitely slowed down, and... Like clockwork, you know, a month and a half, two months later, she's laying, and mm-hmm. now they're in the incubator, and they're still looking really good, so. Oh, well, well, good luck with them. Yeah. See, I was fortunate, though, because when I got my first pair from Jordan Russell, he gave me a heads up. He's like, these are eating pinkies. He's like, but when you get them, they're probably going to go off food, so you're probably going to have to give them tails until they start taking off again. And sure enough, I mean, it took me probably two or three months worth of cis feeding tails before they did finally just start drop feeding. But I mean, I, I haven't had a problem with them since. I mean, they're like Alterna, you know, once they're going, they're, they're solid. Like you're not going to have any problems with it. It's just getting them. there. Yes. It's getting them to that point. I, my pair came from Jordan as well. Oh, nice. And nice. It's same story. Uh, three months of, of mouse tail. And, and every time I'm sitting there with the, the little snake and I'm putting the mouse tail down its throat, I'm just thinking like, is this just stressing you out even more? So we're just perpetuating this, yeah. but just like random Tuesday, two o'clock in the afternoon. All right. I, I think I'm going to eat. And from that point on, the yep. female has refused the meal. 
So I don't know. I did it with Condros too, and I really like. I've I talked to Cody Bartolini about it too, because you know he gets the the Bothriopsis, you know, little bilineata babies yeah. that have to be assist fed, and you know we're I'm of the same opinion that he is. You know the the thirty seconds it takes for you to get a tail in him is probably a lot less stressful than sitting there trying to tease feed him with a pinky for you know fifteen yeah. minutes. So I'd rather just get it over with and be done. You know. Well, Zach, let me ask you your your babies. What is what the ones that you were you were assist feeding? What is the yeah. natural diet in the wild? So the natural diet in the wild for Boiga, I I believe, is the, the ectothermic thing: geckos, frogs, you know, things of that nature. So what we actually did here that did get them to take the pinks finally uh, is um, I just forgot the name of the company where you can buy the scents. Everybody, uh, Reptilinks. Reptilinks. Yeah, we got, I believe it was their gecko scent. Um, and I just basically started super saturating pinkies. I would actually marinate them for like a day or two Jeez. in that. And then they went and they ate those. Mm-hmm. Um, and the female took those almost immediately. Uh, the male showed a lot of interest when we put the first pink in. And we had to do some more tails. And then he inevitably went and took um, the pinky mouse. But that male has been a finicky feeder, you know, his whole life. Um, yeah, males. My male, so. he, he eats kind of whenever he wants to. I've wasted a many yeah. mice on him, you know. And I talked to Nipper mm-hmm. Reed, and Nipper's a big boy guy in the UK as well. And he said the same thing. He's like, man, he's like, my males eat maybe six months out of the year. He's like, they're always. He's like, everyone I've kept is the males are just the pain. He's like, females eat no problem. He's like, males, you're gonna have ones that just they don't. They either feed or they don't. You know, they're they're yep. either on or they're off. And most of the time they're off, but yeah, know. that's been my experience. But yeah. they're great snakes. I I love them. They're not going anywhere. They're staying, you know, in my collection until they die of old age. Hopefully, nice. Yeah, and my female's so you... a monster, man. Like my female, when it's feeding day, I got to be careful because if if it's you know yeah. after lights are out, I open those that sliding glass door, man. She's she's there. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy. So have you ever done like a controlled study, whether it be with students or yourself, of taking one or two of the babies, setting them up in a naturalistic fit, and just introducing live prey and let them do their thing on their own, or no? With the boiga? Yeah. Or, or no. any of your smaller stuff that's, you know, you have to assist feed any kind of pinky parts. We, we haven't done that yet, but we, it's funny you say that. We may be doing that very soon because I have a clutch of Baron Eye, Baron's Racers. And, um, yeah. Half of them are great eaters, and the other half are not. Um, and I've done kind of the some, many of the old school tricks. We, we, we did the paper bag with a pink. We've tried live pinks. We've tried scented pinks. Um, I just gave watch them giving them tails tomorrow. Um, but yeah, that that may be something that we do. There, there might be quite a few house geckos being purchased here shortly. <laughs> nice, nice. Anyway, but no, it is rather interesting, I think, though, that half this clutch of babies just immediately took the frozen thawed pinkies without any hesitation. And then exactly half of the clutch did not do that. Uh, and, and they look at the pinks and are, they're kind of scared. And, and I, they have quite a few barren eye. I have quite a few barren eye. They're kind of like the boiga in that they will, you know, they'll be a pain in the ass feeder. And then all of a sudden, they eat once. And then it's kind of like, all right, you yep. hold your breath, give them another mouse, and then they eat again, and then they're off to the races. And those things grow like weeds, man. I mean, they go from 
you know, a foot long, once they really start going up to three to four foot monsters in a year. I mean, they, they wow. really can grow. So, but that's once they start eating. I am um, curious though, because I have those Vitatus froglets pretty much constantly mm-hmm. because my group of Vitatus doesn't stop producing. When yeah. I hatch these cyania, which will probably be like mid-November, if my math is right, um, I'm very interested to see if I offer some froglets off the bat if they end up taking those. So, I would bet you they they that, that might be more successful than you think. I'll, yeah, <laughs> well, I'll try it out, and yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'll post about it or do a video or something. Well, then, but With all baby snakes, it's, it always cracks me up when we force our preferred diet on them. Uh, great example... False water cobra babies, a lot of times they won't take pinks. Many do, but many don't. And I've actually had animals where you present them a pink, they, they flick their tongue, they don't know what the hell that thing is, and they just spaz out and try to get away. But if you take a toad or a frog, and you know, when we do this, I go out after it rains and I get them off the road, and then I throw them in our minus 80 freezer for a week, which kills pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I throw them in a ninja and turn them into frog pate. Uh, <laughs> and if you dip or, or, or we call it the frog glaze, you put the frog glaze on the pinky and you present that to a false water cobra, they are they go. You get that crazy feeding response we're talking about. Um, because in nature they're feeding on frogs and toads and amphibians in the wetlands where you you find them. At. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't surprise me at all if we if you offer those sienna tadpoles if they. Just hammer them. Man, as um, crude as it is, I just, I, I have, like, you want a feeder that's clean, get, you know, a group yeah. of leucomelis, get a group of atatus or something. And, I mean, yeah, it takes a little while for them to get some size on them, but, I mean, that's, like, you don't have to worry about parasites, you know, for the most part. Uh, you know, it's just, you have a regular supply, you're not having to spend a ton of money on frozen lizards and stuff, and, you know, they're not toxic. Yeah. It's perfect. Anywho, I was going to ask another question about feeding baby snakes, but I don't really know if we wanted to segue to something else. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, have you ever done, you know, daytime, nighttime, lights on, lights off, you know, one person opposed to three people in the room? Like, have you ever done any of that stuff? We, we haven't done it as a formal study. However, okay. what we do do here is, you know, I teach my students notes, 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 take notes on everything. Right. Um, and I can honestly say like anytime, and, and this is kind of common sense. I don't want to give the impression like this is something revolutionary. If you've kept snakes, you know this. Okay. But like what, so we produced four clutches of water cobras and I only intended on producing two. Um, we ended up with a crap load of baby false water cobras, close to a hundred, uh, in the awesome. first clutch that came out, I had some graduate students who didn't have any real experience with baby snakes, and I was, you know, explaining to them how to feed them. And <clears throat> what I told them is you get the, the, the mouse on forceps, and then you find out where they are, and you kind of put the mouse in. And what I apparently said is you shake the mouse and put it down. I don't know why I said <laughs> that, but they interpreted it as I've got to take the mouse with the forceps put it in the face of this baby snake and start shaking it. And any snake breeder knows that's like the worst thing you can possibly do. And that clutch of water cobras was just 
from that initial interaction, they were crazy difficult to get to eat. Okay. We learned subsequent group of water cobras. I told them, put the mouse in, open the drawer, put the mouse in, close the drawer. All of them ate. So that initial interaction with food absolutely is kind of critical with certain species of snake. Other mm -hmm. species, not so much. But I can tell you, at least for water cobras, because we've got a nice, big, robust sample size, you can totally create an association of negativity with feeding if you don't do it right the first time. And there's definitely a long-lasting effect. Um, because yeah. there's one animal... And I believe we just now got to eat. And I had to pull out every trick in the book to get them to eat. Um, the subsequent other clutches, they all ate right off the bat because we didn't do that. So, uh, of, but we are going to be doing next year. Uh, my students don't know this yet, but this is what's rolling around in my brain. We're going to definitely do a little bit more with feeding-based studies. So anybody listening, you know, shoot me a, a message and tell me what you want us to look at. And I'll gladly look at it. Um, but we're going to be doing, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, that, that initial interaction, we're going to be doing some calorilic analyses of different types of feeders and, and its response and growth. Uh, we're going to compare slow metabolism to fast metabolism snakes and look at growth based off the feeder type. I want to start doing some, some deep dives into that. Did you uh, see that, also... that study done with the cutting of the pinkies and the corn snakes? Yes. I believe we saw that one. There's also a study that was done with boa constrictors at a zoo, and they looked at feeding small prey items more frequently or one large prey item, but they weighed the same over a week. And and they, you know, that one showed, and we did a study like that here that showed the same thing. Smaller items more frequently led to better, more consistent growth. Um, so that was kind of cool. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I do the I do the cutting thing, and I mean it's I've talked about it before. It's one of those things where like whether it does something or not, it takes ten seconds to do. Yeah, you know, so why not? And no, why not? It makes sense. Makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. You know, it's giving their digestive system a little easier route to get to the things it needs. And yeah, well, anytime you you kind of increase the surface area to to, to mass ratio, you're going to get better. Um, digestion anyway. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it does kind of make a lot of basic biological sense. So it's cool that it it ultimately worked out that way. How big are those clutches on average with the false waters? <laughs> they lay a lot of eggs. <laughs> I mean, are they, is it like, like a lot? Like it... Because that's I what like I... his voice cracked on that one. Yeah. yeah. Did you like that? I found that interesting. Like, you look at popwins and carpet or uh, chondros, right? Like, popwins lay a small clutch of large eggs, and then you have chondros, which lay a large clutch of small eggs. And it's... Well, well, our average clutch size was uh, 28 eggs. Cool. And they lay big eggs, like, not small eggs. And one thing about, and this actually applies to all those dips added snakes. Um, and it's kind of common knowledge among false water cobra breeders, but if you're not, if you haven't done it extensively, you don't know this, they naturally double clutch very easily. I feel uh, like that's a lot more common in a lot of species than we think it is. Oh yeah. And, and that's uh, from, that's from retained sperm or is that from a second breeding? Well, I can tell you it's from retained sperm because I put two of my pairs together only once. <laughs> um, awesome. So there we ended go. up with four clutches. <laughs> uh, and the one, one girl, she laid 28 eggs, 
um, with, the, with the initial clutch. And then she laid actually 31 eggs, the second clutch, which was she laid more eggs, and they were the same size as the first clutch. So a lot of wow. times your second clutch, your egg mass is smaller and yeah. it produces smaller offspring. But um, we're actually writing this up as a as a pub, which is kind of that's crazy. Uh, but uh, no, the babies were exactly the same size. In fact, they were a little bit bigger with the second clutch. And then my other female though that double clutched, um, she laid her first clutch was perfect, you know, twenty eight eggs, and then she laid a clutch of seventeen. Um, they were slugs, but they weren't, I mean, they look like eggs. They were perfectly formed eggs. I'm 100% certain if I would have thrown the male in with her, I would have gotten another fertile clutch. Uh, and then um, I actually, the other thing that they do is they do sperm retention um, for a long time after they bred. So I inherited a pair of falsies from a guy, and I did not know that he put them together before he sent them to us. And we got those animals in November, and the female uh, dropped a clutch of eggs in early April. Wow. And it was a little bit shocking because we weren't planning on those. We had no intentions of getting eggs from that female. Um, actually, it's really funny. My grad student walked in and looked down and was like, this is after we already had like a butt ton of false water cover eggs. And then she saw <laughs> more eggs in the, in the female that wasn't supposed to be laying eggs. And... We had a, we have security cameras all over our collection. You just see her like stop and stare, and then she <laughs> kind of like slowly faces the enclosure, and then she just sat down on the floor and just stared in the viv like more freaking eggs. So yeah, we had a lot of a lot of baby water covers. But you know, being a scientist, I was like opportunity sample size. So yep, you know, we took data on all those those animals, and that's what we're using for all these studies right now. Um, so they're all going to use. Um. What was the time duration between the two clutches? Uh, it was it, that was actually really cool. It was right around sixty days, because oh, wow. what was interesting is um, with the female that laid the two viable clutches, the eggs were hatching in the first clutch within forty-eight hours of her laying the second clutch. That's fantastic. It's really cool natural history. Um, so, so do you feel like the? And again, I'm not a doctor, so I'm going to use wrong terminology. But it's okay. Do you do you feel that the sperm retention was legitimately retained, or do you feel like all the oviduct eggs were fertilized, but she selectively chose, you know, the first 28 to go first, and then she's sorry, gotcha. I got paste myself for the next clutch. I think that there was just sperm retained in those oviducts. Okay. Okay. Um, and the reason why is. When she egged out the first time, uh, she looked like any old snake that has laid a clutch of eggs. Right. And uh, you know, I, I was feeding her to get her back up to weight, totally having no intentions of her double clutching. I actually wasn't overly thrilled that she double clutched because I don't, you know, that's not the best thing for the female sometimes. Right, health-wise, of course. Yeah. Um, but no, she she started to swell, and then I thought, I put weight back on her. This is awesome. And then she <laughs> kept on swelling. I was like, oh, no, we got another clutch of eggs coming. And then the other female started swelling, and, you know, they double clutch, but I didn't realize how readily they will double clutch. So, and uh, after talking with a bunch of breeders, turns out this is actually very common with them. So um, you have to be careful when they lay the, the first clutch how much you feed them, because if you give them a whole bunch of protein like I was doing, I unintentionally gave them all the protein they ever needed for vitellogenesis to go down again um, and for them to yoke up another – 
you know, series of follicles and everything. So right, right. I mean, yeah. from an evolutionary standpoint, it's it makes complete sense that you know there's yeah. species that would do that because it's like that's a huge leg up. Oh yeah, it's it's Massive. a huge leg up, and where they they're where they live. I mean, these animals are living in a in a habitat, the, the wetlands of South America, the Llanos, you know, the Chaco, whatever, all those different habitats. There's all kinds of predators mm-hmm. in those systems. You've got avian predators, mammalian predators. You've got other snakes. I mean, think about like Nusaranas, not not Boruna, but Clelia. There's there's like six or seven species of those, and they're all eating other snakes. So. The number of baby falsies that die is probably very, very high. So to maintain recruitment, it totally makes sense for those females to, if they're selected for and they're getting a lot of food, why not drop another clutch of eggs um, to avoid all that predation so, and to maintain their population? It's actually, it's actually interesting that you had made the coyote reference earlier to, to the false waters because mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Professor Dan Flores. He wrote the book Coyote America. And he yeah. does a lot of natural history stuff on from you know North American natural history and buffalo and all that kind of stuff. But his book on on specifically coyotes, uh, one of the things he references, I guess, there's like six or seven species of mammals in the world that can actually regulate the amount of offspring because they feel like there's not enough of them in the area. So the old joke is, you know, coyote hunters, the more coyotes you kill, the more coyotes you make because that year the following females go, oh, man, there's there's not enough coyotes. We need to make more. So her litter size will be, you know, 15 instead of only six pups or whatever. Yeah. I wonder if there's anything similar to that in, you know, falsies or, or, or snakes of this type, you know, double clutching like that on purpose because they're like, oh, crap, I'm by myself still. I, no idea. But, it, you know, you have a female and she drops her eggs and she's successful and goes out and finds a lot of food um, versus a, another female that drops her eggs and doesn't go out and find a lot of food. There may be an evolutionary advantage to that female that's able to find the food. And if she finds the food, she's going to get the protein to make that double clutch. Right, right. So there is kind of a, a hypothetical evolutionary mechanism there to favor that. But lots of dipsides do this. Uh, people that breed tricolor hogs – I mean, they're notorious for dropping like four, five, six clutches from one, one mating. Wow, um, so, uh, in fact, you have to sometimes with those females, they'll they'll lay eggs until they die. Like they will literally burn themselves out. So you have to kind of judge when you breed them so that you're going to cool them at a point, and the cooling is what stops the oviductal. The, well, I'm sorry, the follicular development. Right. Um, but all that stuff I find absolutely awesome. I mean, it's yeah. All these South American colubrids are, are are pretty interesting. And how um, many of the tricolors do you have? I have two pairs. I have a, a pair that just reached sexual maturity, um, and then I have another pair that is uh, they're they're probably around ten months old, I think. Um, they're kind of fun. They're they're um, I keep those in racks and tubs. And I give them about two and a half inches of a, a substrate mix, and they're like the worms from Dune. <laughs> <laughs> they're like little hog-nosed sand boas. That's what they remind me of. Um, the spice. The spice. Yeah. And I'll take my hook and kind of rub it on the surface of the substrate, and you can see the substrate moving as she's coming over. It starts uh, breathing heavily. Yeah. And then they, they kind of erupt up out of there. Uh, but another thing is like all of these <laughs> pistoglyphics, Glyphus snakes we're talking about from South, South America, they are, they're kind of easy to breed. Um, 
And when I put the tricolor hogs together, you know, I, I put the male in there. They're smaller than the females. You always wonder about them possibly trying to eat the mate. So I'm watching, and I think it took them maybe a minute and a half to lock, like just immediate. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, well, that worked. Um, and then, you know, kind of kept back and checked, and they stayed locked for like two and a half hours. And he's like, all right, I'm done. And I put them back in the tub. And I got, I did that and got four locks, just bam, 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 bam. So I haven't gotten a clutch of Musaranas yet um, from mating. We actually had our female produce a parthenogenic clutch, which was pretty cool. Uh, but the eggs died. But when we actually tried breeding them last spring, same deal. Put the male in, and she's the only snake I've ever had that actually arched her tail, like picked up her tail and exposed her cloaca, and she chased him. And it was a little bit nerve-wracking because they're notorious for eating the male. So oh, I kind of standing that. there with a the hook, wondering, am I going to have to eat? <laughs> like, what right. the hell going on? I got all kinds of crazy pictures of that behavior. And then they locked in. She produced follicles, but then it didn't go you know, full term. So something was off. That's fine. We'll, we had plenty of snakes born here. You know, it was probably a blessing in disguise. Yeah, but, no kidding. Um, yeah. Do you guys, uh, do you guys ultrasound or anything? We, we did not. It's funny you say that, Bill, because we have an ultrasound. And all spring long, I kept asking the other professors, like, where's the ultrasound? Where's the ultrasound? Um, because I wanted to know if we were getting as many eggs as I thought we were going to be getting. And we, we did get as many eggs as I thought we were going to get. <laughs> but um, when the last clutch was laid, we found the damn ultrasound. So, of course, it is, it is stationed away, locked away, so that next year, whenever we get around to, to breeding things, we'll have it. Um, well, it's probably good because had you found it in the beginning before they dropped any clutches, you probably only would have had one clutch. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, that's true. Well, here's a fun bit of uh, biology. with and, and COVID actually benefited us in a weird way. So our animal collection, we have we don't have it just to have it. We have it to teach zoocide majors you know, animal husbandry. Um, and I was the guy that was in charge of it. So if I'm in charge of it, it's going to be reptiles and amphibians. It's just that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. So, I put together our collection, and, and we have, like, pet store animals, as we call them, crestids, you know, bearded dragons, corn snakes. And then we have more obscure species, like falsies. Uh, we got all kinds of Australasian pythons and weird colubrids and things like that. And so my herpetology class last fall, one of the projects we had is I wanted to try to breed some of our animals. So we had a Barron's Racer breeding project. Um, we had a Yellowtail Crebo breeding project. And uh, I bred the, the false water cobras. And then the grad students bred all of our pythons because, well, not all of our pythons, but they bred ball pythons, spotted pythons, uh, carpets, because we needed those for some experiments. And what was crazy is up until beginning of March, we had no indication that the bear and I breeding took. We had no indication that the yellow creepos had taken. And our pythons were, you know, active. And I, and, these snakes are being interacted with, with like 10 to 15 people a day. Okay. Right. When COVID hits, everybody leaves campus. And when everybody leaves camp, left campus, all those females that we bred and we thought they didn't take, they got calm. I think their cortisol levels dropped. Everything was gravy. All the threats left and they all freaking ovulated. And we ended up with all these freaking eggs that we're not. <laughs> Hang on, because we thought there's no way that these breedings took place because we did this in September 
in October. So we had a clutch of the, the, the bear and I that were laid. Like I said, we bred those at the very beginning of the fall semester. Um, the Kribos we bred in September, early October when you're supposed to, they didn't drop eggs until April, which is kind of normal for them. But at the same time, uh, we had no indication of anything that's going on. So it, it, it's kind of a testament to when you're breeding snakes, you just need to leave them alone. <laughs> right, right, right. That stress really did have a huge impact on our success. Um, and that's how you end up planning on having, you know, 60 baby snakes and you end up with 150 <laughs> or 60 or I don't know what our final number was, but it was insane. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was fun, but it was also kind of nerve wracking because, you know, we had to buy a lot of baby racks. That's for sure. Anyway, how as far as the tricolors go, how closely related are those to the rest? Like the ones we have here in North America? Um, they always seem like like, yeah, it's a hog nose, but it's not like a hog no. nose. They're a great example of convergent evolution. So. Um, taxonomically, uh, they fall in two different groups of dipsatids. The, the hognose snakes we have in the genus Heterodon are in one subgroup of dipsatids. Mm -hmm. So one clade or evolutionary lineage. Right. And the Lystrophus, some people put them back in the Xenodon. The um, South American hognose snakes are in a completely different clade of dipsatid snakes. But they live in a similar habitat and they burrow down into the substrate. Um, uh, and, and they, they feed on amphibians. So evolution is just kind of acting on them in similar ways, which created this similar form. Uh, but there's definite, I mean, they, they look the same, but I could say that there, there's some differences. When you work with the tricolors and you work with things like Westerns, um, there's just, I, I can't explain it, but there's just, there's definite differences in their behavior. One thing about the tricolors, which is kind of fun, is they are ridiculously twitchy snakes. And I mean, literally twitchy, like, you, you go to pull them out and you touch them and they do that kind of rapid lateral strike, <laughs> but they forget to open their mouths. Um, and they'll like smack their head off you a bunch. Uh, and they just keep doing it. And I don't care who you are. The first couple times that they do that, it just makes you drop them. And it's a very efficient strategy to keep things from interacting with them. Whereas the Westerns don't seem to do that. Westerns huff a lot and puff. Um, the South Americans don't do that behavior. Uh, and the um, Lestrophus guys, and he, nobody can get them to live past six or eight years. And Heterodon, you can do that. So we're still figuring out the tricolors. That's why I like them. Uh, mm. Is anybody can make a little discovery with them to make their husbandry better. Um, so... Yeah, because that's, yeah, that's another species that seems like there was a point in time where they were, like, the thing, and now they've they've kind of... Well, taking a back seat. Yeah. The, the thing with them is because you breed them and you end up with five, six clutches of eight eggs a piece, if you have four or five people doing that, you can totally saturate the market mm -hmm. for tricolor hogs. Um, and that's probably what happened with them. Uh, but uh, I highly recommend them. They're, they're wonderfully quirky little snakes. Uh, and they don't require that much heat either. They're one of those. So you can kind of nice. get away with keeping your temperatures low um, with them. And are you, would you consider the, the Baroni to, to be tough to breed too? Because that's another one that you see, like you see them on a fairly regular basis, but you never see them in large numbers. 
which gives me the impression that maybe they're like there's they're something about them that's difficult as far as getting getting eggs to hatch. The, the Nusaranas? No, the Phalodrys. Oh, sorry. Phalodrys. Yes and no. The, the males want to mate. That's for damn sure. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it was kind of awkward <laughs> when I did that study because the kids have to do this, like, ethogram. So we, we come up with these different behaviors. Um, and then you watch the snakes for a certain time period. And, like, every 30 seconds, whatever the snake is doing, you... you you have a code and you put it down. And so I, I'm in the room with the, the student who's doing that. And we had, you know, population was one of the codes. And I'm like, all right, you know, they're, they're probably not going to mate or copulate. And we'll do a, a trial run of the different behaviors. Um, and so here we go. And I put the male in with the, with the female the first time he's ever been with her. And it was instantaneous. Like he did a couple tongue flicks. Went over, wrapped up with her, and then immediately locked. <laughs> Population, uh, you know, first first behavior, and then a minute later, being stuck in a room watching snakes have sex. Population with a student, <laughs> you know, and then a minute later. <laughs> Population, and they did this like that. It was ninety minutes or something. So, the, and the males will mate. Um, it's just getting the females to ovulate. That's where. It gets a little tricky. Mm -hmm. uh, with most of these South American snakes, people will say you don't have to cycle them. And there's definitely some truth to that. Uh, but I cycled, started cycling hours. And when I cycled hours, that's when we got eggs. And it's not like dropping them down into the 50s or something like yeah. that. You just drop them down like 60 degrees. Because that's what they in the temperate part of South America where most of these guys live. Um, but I do think that the cycling does help. Uh, I, I know with I cycled the water cobras this past year, my fecundity in the same animals went up like wow. for each of them. So there's definitely something, you know, going on there. Yeah, that's uh, but, something else I can't really wrap my head around because you have species like chondros <clears throat> yeah. where, I mean, they don't experience, unless it's like the northern types, like they don't experience those lows. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. the same with, with a lot of other species that we keep, like the falsies, I'm sure. Like they don't experience those lower temperatures, but for whatever reason that that's a trigger even yeah. though that's not something they'd, they'd encounter in the wild with the with a lot of those snakes that live closer to the equator mm -hmm. i've oftentimes wondered about and and people do do this the, the short-tailed people do this we're not where you don't so much cycle with temps but you cycle with humidity right so you know you basically let the cage dry out for a couple months and then you know drop the temps a little bit but then just drench the tank or the viv or the tub or whatever you've got it is flooded out mm -hmm. yeah and then you know because that's more indicative of what you with the whole dry wet season right um and we did do that with bear and i in this last year and we did get the clutch but i also think with us part of our reason why things don't take is because it's just the nature of our collection it's a teaching collection so uh i can do whatever i want to try to get these animals away from people but People have keys and then get into rooms, and the next thing you know, you know, I have a janitor that's doing his job, but he's going into the room every single day. Um, lights are going on and off. It's really hard to maintain a light, dark cycle. Mm -hmm. And um, in the private sector, obviously, you don't have that issue. <laughs> I mean, maybe you do if you've got these things in your family room, but you can have a little bit more control. So right. uh, it could be that our bear and I would have readily bred if we could just get them away from 
people. Because yeah. as soon as we got them away from people, we got eggs. So. Yeah, like I said, I mean, you see them on a fairly regular basis, but you still don't see a lot of them. And so, I mean, the price tag yeah. is still high. And when I see that kind of stuff, I'm like, okay, that must be a, a species that's just not as easy to, to reproduce as other stuff. Yeah. And with, with the bear and I, people, and there, there's some morphs or lines uh, where, where you've got the powder blues yeah, and the, the browns and the high blacks and all those. And um, people, whenever you have that kind of aspect to it, you also run into some inbreeding issues because you want the line to go or you want mm-hmm. blue to blue and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've talked to a couple people about Baronite, and uh, it turns out that sometimes they'll have issues with trying to get blues to, to produce, but their greens produce every every time. And the, the greens are the most common phenotype, mm-hmm. and they're probably the most genetically diverse, too. So, you know, there might be something going on there. Or this could just be total conjecture and absolute bullshit. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, uh, but anywho. But, yeah, they're great snakes. I, I, I love them dearly. So it's great. Yeah, those are really cool. Those and, I mean talking about you know convergent evolution you know those in rhino rats yep it's very very odd how you get stuff like that on you know chondros and emeralds and mm-hmm. complete opposite sides of the world but i mean they're practically the the same animal behavior wise looks you know cobras and crebos yeah cobras and crebos man yeah i i i just picked up 2.2 rhinos uh and they may they they're quickly becoming my favorite rat snakes and Asian rat snakes for something that, that I do. That's like, you know, my personal collection, I have quite a few old world rats and I was waiting to get the rhinos because I wanted, you know, to kind of iron out my, my husbandry. And I, I did that over the past couple of years. And so I got them. And when I got them, they're so aquatic and I knew that they were aquatic and you feed them the rosies and you put them in like little deli cups. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea they spent as much time as they do in water. Uh, and, and, you know, I love things that are in the water, so these things have quickly right gone to the top. Alley. My yeah. favorite rat snake. <laughs> That's uh, I'm I'm really surprised more of those like temperate Asian rat species aren't more popular, given how cool. I mean, maybe it's because you have oh, to God, keep yeah. them so cool, but it's like it's snake you don't have to give heat. Like, why uh-huh. are, why aren't people keeping these more? No, I, I love them, and, and they're so. I mean, they're the whole package. If you're a nerd, they. <laughs> They undergo an onogenic color change, so you end up with these ugly ducklings that turn into these bright green, you know, moderately large snakes. Uh, they're they're active, from what I understand. I mean, I'm, I'm talking based off of listening to podcasts like with Rob Stone and mm-hmm. reading articles uh, and, and things like that. But I, I can't wait for them to grow up because um, I have a big old Viv in, at home that's just waiting for them. Um, to do the whole naturalistic thing with, they're going to be, they're going to be wicked. They're going to be right next to those Boiga actually. Nice. So, awesome. Anyway. Yeah. Those are, I need, I need to get another one or two mm-hmm. because I lost mine. <laughs> it, it got out and I never found it again. Oh, that's unfortunate. I had it for a week. This house is freaking yeah. cursed, man. Like, I didn't lose a snake for like 10 years up until we bought this house. It must be on like an Indian burial ground or something. Cause, yeah. Like, 
it's got bad juju. That's all. The alternate, I lost oh. some alterna. Like I found most of them. I lost one, I think, that I never found again. But like baby alterna got out. Uh, I had a chondro get out, which that was easy to find. Um, that freaking Jansen and I. Uh, I mean, it's just it's weird. Like I went from from having no escapees for the longest time to like looking like it's amateur hour over here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you just have to snake proof the snake room and then they hopefully stay in one spot. Yeah. Um, so. Sucks when you hey. open up that cage and there ain't nothing in it. Oh, there's there's nothing like that you know, punch to the gut of crap, it's gone. And then that that kind of white hot fear hits you of where the hell is it? Um no. Then they're done that. Yeah. Well, like the Ganyasoma, I've got a bunch of hides in the Ganyasoma tanks or tubs, and so I was like, okay, he's in the elevated hide, whatever. And so then I I took out all the the foliage and stuff, and I was like, okay, he's not under any of this. Then I took the the floor hide up. I was like, okay, he's not under that. And I checked the mounted hide, and I was like, this feels awfully light because I can usually tell if they're in there or not because I could feel it. And I was like, he ain't in there either. And so I was like looking around, like looking under the completely flat and like clearly there was nothing under like the the puppy pads. And I'm yep. looking under there as if he's somehow magically going to just pop up. And it was like, this sucks. Because I have no idea where that yeah. where he went. But he was in the pantry. <clears throat> have either one of you guys ever thought a snake was gone and you ripped the cage apart and you're looking everywhere for it and you're like, oh, my God, it got out. All right. And you walk away from the cage to go start ripping apart your book cabinet or your dresser or whatever, yeah. looking for him. And you left the lid off, or you left the glass open, or whatever. And then, like 15, 20 minutes later, maybe an hour later, you just start standing there in disbelief, going, "Man, where'd this thing go?" And it's still sitting in the cage. No. Yeah, I have done oh, that. Yeah. I've, I've done, done that. like thirty times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have absolutely done that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um. Now, the 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 craziest thing as far as a snake getting out that I had happen in recent memory is what I. With the old world rat snakes, I have um, Japanese rat snakes, which are really, you know, those are cool, they're awesome. really fantastic. Pieces. They're they're really awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty awesome. Um, and I have them in a, a big, you know, four by two PVC enclosure that's all decked out. Um, and it looks really neat. And uh, I fed them. And when I, you know, we, my, this is before when when you could actually like go out to eat and stuff. So my family was leaving, and I. Gave the snakes their mouse and then I, you know, slid the glass shut. And I guess that I had a little bit more oomph than I needed to. And the glass closed and then it bounced back open an inch. Oh, yeah. That'll okay. Happen. And um, luckily I closed the door because I've got little guards on the, the bottom of the, the door where I have the animals at home so they can't get door out. Sweeps. Mm -hmm. out. Yeah. And so um, I got back from eating dinner or whatever. And, uh, I have everything on timers. Well, at the time, on the other wall, I had some crested geckos in some, some vivs. Uh, and I walked in the room, and I, I that same thing you're talking about. Like, I immediately knew something was off, but I didn't know what was off. And then I was looking at all the enclosures, and sure enough, I saw that the um, gap rat enclosure was open. Son of a bitch, because those guys move a lot. Yeah. And so... I'm looking through the Viv, same thing you were talking about, Phil. I'm running my fingers through the substrate and everything, and nobody's in there. And so 
I learned a long time ago, because of the frequency of this happening with me, that you just kind of stop, don't touch anything, and look for things that have been knocked over mm-hmm. and try to track across the room. So, Which can be uh, difficult with a small colubrid because like, yeah. if you have like a, a you know boa constrictor get loose, it's oh, going to knock stuff over, right? But something that's small, you know, it can get in the nooks and crannies. That's a pain in the ass. Oh, yeah. Well, I look at my desk and I saw that like the jar I keep the pencils in was actually knocked over. Like, all right, he went that way or she went that way. And then I look up and I have like um, a, an ana- a little possum skull on my bookshelf on the other wall and it's knocked over. So I'm like, okay, she went over to there. <laughs> and as I'm panning, now I'm looking into the like at the crested bivs, which are the classic two foot tall exos. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm looking in there and I'm like, something, there's an, there's an extra vine in there. Like, what the <laughs> hell? And I noticed that the Crested Gecko is losing its damn mind. Like, one of them is losing its damn mind. And then I noticed that the other one, I can't find it. So I go over there and I look, and sure enough, there's Japanese rat snake. It got, it went into the mist, in through the mister hole that I had through the top of the viv, and it, it ate two of the geckos. And it was just sitting in there, just happy as could be. Um, Oh, man. uh, And so when I opened up the vivarium to get the snake out, that last female gecko, like, we all talk about racket, like racks flying. Yeah. This thing generated wings. I mean, it like <laughs> levitated out of that enclosure because I imagine the snake had been in there trying to eat it forever. Um, and I, I, I pulled her out and kind of pissed because, well, I like those geckos even if they were crested, they were cool. Um, right. But then that snake underwent like the biggest, baddest growth spurt ever, <laughs> and it had been living off of rodents its whole life. Um, and if, if you read about them, they eat eggs and reptiles and things like that, obviously. Um, but I didn't feed her the rest of the, I mean, she went into brumation with those and, and she laid a beautiful clutch of eggs and the other female I have slugged out. So I don't know if there was something magical about those two crested she ate, but yeah, bye-bye cresteds. I was really kind of pissed, to be honest with you. <laughs> that happened to but, my cousin. Anyway. We gave her a corn snake when I was a kid. We were breeding corn. She had finches and it got out <laughs> and one day she found a very fat. She was down one finch, and she found a very fat corn snake that was sitting in the water bowl, and it could not get out of the cage because of how fat it was. Yeah. Oh, man. The other so finch now, was losing it. The other finch was freaking out. Mm-hmm. We had that happen at Strictly. One of the girls that worked in the office there, she bred sugar gliders, oh. and her entire apartment building was getting fumigated, so she brought this giant, you know, you know, macaw-sized bird cage full of sugar gliders. I think she had, like, seven or eight adults. And she all together, and she brought the whole thing in. They're like, you know, can I keep it here for the weekend? And they're like, sure. And somebody told her to put it in the colubrid room. And my friend Chris went to work and flipped the lights on. And he saw this giant black rat that had got black rat snake that had got out, and it ate six of the adult mm. sugar gliders and was so fat it couldn't get back out of the out of the uh, bars of the of the enclosure. How pissed <laughs> yeah. was she? show she was she was she was mortified you know she was crying and sad i mean these were her babies yeah, and like we felt bad but like that sucks we told her like are you sure you want to put this in the colubrid room like i'm all like, <laughs> put it in the frog room or something yeah <laughs> anyway that's yeah you got a little ecosystem when you put the sugar gliders in with the rat snake so. yeah well you are the weakest link yes yeah so, but anyway uh we'll just i think we're we're at an hour and a half 
So we'll just mean well when next time you're available and Jake's here, we'll have to do just a crypto episode because there's a lot of stuff I want to get okay. to with that. Um, but yeah, man, this is awesome. Like, very cool. We love very the obscure cool. colubrid stuff. So yeah, and I, awesome. I love all the education stuff. You know, that too. The college and the the yeah. kids and everything. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, well, more people need to give these obscure guys their just due because they're. They're fun, and you know a lot of people think that they're we, we figured out everything, and we have scratched the surface, man. Mm-hmm. And yep. who knows who's going to make one hell of a you know herpetological or herpetocultural discovery, and you, you can do it with these animals that are they don't have advocates, and there's not that many people working with them, and mm-hmm. that's, that's they've always been my bag. I oh, yeah. always love them to death. So. Not not every snake has to have a neck. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and not everybody yeah. has a blue crayfish named after him. Exactly. Well, you know. It's so cool, man. It is the coolest. So cool. Yeah. Those little lobsters. <laughs> that that that's the coolest thing that, that anyone's ever done for me. I, I I teach a lot of kids and obviously the crayfish is the other side of, of my biological life. Dude, and um if you were single, you that would them, be like the best pickup line at a bar. It'd be like I got a blue crayfish <laughs> named after me. Yeah. Can that. I buy you a uh, zebra? <laughs> but um, no. It, it, well, the crazy thing about the crawdads is when I described the first species that I named, it was like really cool and novel and awesome. And being a, a, a dirty nature kid, it doesn't get any better than naming a new species and all that. Oh yeah. You fast forward to now, crayfish. It, there's so few people studying them that now. The novelty of naming new crayfish, it's not worn off, but I got a lot of things to do and I don't have that much time. So I've started basically, you know, I determine, yep, this one's new. And then I've, I've kind of given it, give them to my students to name. Um, oh, that's cool. That's how Loafman and I came to be is I knew that this guy was down there and I knew that it needed named. And I talked to my, you know, one of my former students and my current students at the time. I was like, you guys want to name a species? Can. Um, I didn't say name it after me. I just said, you want to name one? Let's, you know, let's do this because I'm writing a book on the crayfish of West Virginia and everybody has to have a name before you write the damn book. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of running out of time. Um, right. but in the end it ended up working out and it's pretty awesome to know that, you know, when I am long and dead, long time dead in the ground, um, there's going to be a little craw crab scuttling around Southern West Virginia, hopefully as long as it doesn't go extinct. Uh, with Loafman Eye there. So, yeah, but yeah. you got like the coolest cool. looking one of them all named after you. Yeah. Like, at least yeah. it wasn't just a regular brown, like, algae colored crab creature. True. It was a freaking electric that was, yeah, blue. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, that's a huge testament to your to your professorship and like to your education field because those guys could have named it after anybody. I mean, they could have named it after Kanye you know, West a cartoon character. Yeah, exactly. They could have named it after a cartoon character, but no, but they, they wanted to pay homage to their professor that they obviously appreciated and respected. And that's friggin' awesome. Kanye insists. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and put that Kanye. in right yeah, now. I, I, Add that I could make that happen, but I'm not. <laughs> I was going to say, Ensis should be a phenotype, correct? What was that? It's, yeah, Ensis would um, anything that ends in Ensis is giving credence to a geographic place normally, oh. um, and then if it ends in you know fun, fun taxonomy time, if it ends in A, uh, that's giving credence to a woman, 
and if it ends in I, that's giving credence to a to a male. I did not know um, that name. Yep. Wow. No. So it would be like Donya Soma Carol Baskinay. Oh God. No, I don't teach Latin, but but you can't get into taxonomy and not learn Latin. Um, and most most people learn it off the cuff. That's how I learned it. Um, uh, and I, I, I don't want to give the impression I can speak Latin. I can't, but I can, you know, the biological nomenclature stuff. Uh, I have a pretty good handle on most of it. Um, I, I still bump into Latin names where I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Um, and it's kind of fun to look it up and learn it. Yeah. It, and when you learn the names, it makes the, the animals that you are working with that much cooler. So one more course for the water cobra. It has one of the coolest Latin names ever. So its Latin name is Hydrodynastes gigas, or gigas. Um, and hydro means water. Dynastes gives credence to it being a monster. And gigas means giant. So its Latin name translates to giant water monster. So, you know, pretty badass. Pretty badass. Oh <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway. where okay. can people get a hold of you? Uh, well, the best way to, you know, I'm older. So email works. Uh, <laughs> so if you just type my name into to Google, you'll inevitably find my page for What's Liberty. Um, so that's one way. And then I am on Facebook. Uh, back open. Uh, a profile pic right now is me holding up an eyelash viper, Costa Rica. So that's me. There are other Zach Lofman's out there. So um, that, and then I'm on Instagram, but you know, I just crossed the threshold of 40. So I, I barely understand Instagram. So Facebook where I work that. Okay. Boom. Uh, but, um, and anyone listening to this, that's thinking about grad school, wants to work with herbs in a herpetocultural setting, you know, hit me up. We've got funding and we've got the animals and I've got the questions and I need students. What so, about college dropouts? There you go. What? What, what? I'm trying to figure out how to incorporate y'all because everybody makes discoveries, man. But a PhD, it's one thing to have it, but it could also stand for piled high, higher and deeper. So uh, <laughs> an awful lot of people that have a doctorate that, you know, and I'm not trashing PhDs, obviously, but at the same time, you can totally get arrogance with that degree. And I hate that. I absolutely despise when people are like, you have to call me doctor. Um, you know, I'm perfectly fine with people calling me Zach. And you don't have to have a degree to make all kinds of crazy discoveries. It, 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 you know, it teaches you how to do science, mm -hmm. but um, you can learn how to do plenty of science without the degree. Uh, so I just like people that can nerd out and geek out about something. I mean, yeah. in, in, in passion, let her rip. Uh, you know, all the difference there. So that's like my spiel on that. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, definitely okay. appreciate you, man. We'll definitely do a crypto episode because, like sure. I said, there's a lot there I'm, I'm very curious about. I think there's a lot of information that needs to get out there about it because, I, I, you know, I was under the impression that it's, you know, yeah, it's, it exists, but it's not that common, and apparently that's not the case. So definitely going to... When we do the crypto episode, that's when everybody's going to go into a state of depression afterwards. Yeah, you know, <laughs> hey, we're all just now getting used to Nido and, and sort of adjusting yeah. to that being an, a normal thing. It's like, let's throw something else in there now. We're ready. Our, our wounds are healed. Nido run for its money. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway. we'll make that happen. All right. we'll, we'll schedule it. So, Thank you, man. Okay. 
Well, thank you much, guys. Have a good night. Awesome. Later. It was great talking. Yep. Bye. Phil. Yes. Yes. That was a good one. That was a very good one. That's a good one. The guy's a natural. I love it. Dude. It's almost like he talks for a living. <laughs> Straight up. Like, you, you're, you're a doctor. You got a, a blue mini lobster named after you. You walk up in the Golden Corral for your table reservation. You're like, I'm a doctor. I have a blue crayfish named after me. Where's my seat? Yes. yes. Seriously, though. Check that thing out. It's freaking sweet. Oh, I can imagine. It's electric I can blue. imagine. Super cool. I just love, I love how, in, you know, humble he is, and he's, I, I wish I had professors like him in college. I do. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Because it, just the simple fact of how personable he is and how humble he is, and the man has a wealth of knowledge, and he, he wants to live vicariously through his yeah, students. Yeah, he's one of the awesome. guys, though. He's a hobbyist he's just like us, too, you know? And of that's course. always been, I think there's like, there's always been that constant battle between academics and the private sector. Right, you know, right. where private sector looks at him and be like, yeah, you're an academic. You don't, you know, you might know a lot, but you don't really know. Like, it's like the 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 book smart versus street smart kind of thing. Absolutely. You know, and then you have the academics that are like, yeah, you hicks, you guys just keep snakes in boxes. What do you know? You know, but I mean, I, yep. I do think that the hobby slash industry. This is this is one of few where the hobby has actually done a lot for the the academic side of things. Oh, and totally. Is, like, I don't I don't think you see that with with other stuff. You know. No, you, you really don't. You really don't. And like what he was saying about the, the PhDs that get this, you know, entitled elitism to it. And like I've seen it so many times, man. Mm-hmm. And it makes you almost not want to get to their level, you know, academically because you almost don't want to become that. Yeah. And I mean, but part of me understands it because you put that much time into something. It's like I'd at least like to be like, you know, you get the t- you get the, the badge. I'm going to wear it. Right. Right. You but paid your same dues time, and you deserve it. Yeah. But it's not also a free a pass to be an ass. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I think it's great, man. Love talking with him. Yeah, definitely got to make the crypto episode happen. As soon as we hit like the hour mark, I was like, yeah, we ain't getting to crypto. <laughs> that, ain't, that ain't happening. So I was like, we'll just we'll keep rolling with it, man. But It's great. This was episode 94 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. Nice. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. I'm Phil Wolf of Not Tales on IG filling in for Jacob Bratz of JLB Morelia and we will uh, catch y'all next week but remember to check out our sponsors Steve Snatuary and his Venom Hot Sauce Phil you need to try some of that it's awesome I don't know if you're a hot sauce I do. guy but everyone's talking about that cotton mouth man you know me oh, and the man. swamp lions dude that is like legitimately the best one like I don't I, like it's salsa it's like a salsa verde like a green salsa kind of deal Awesome. And I'm not even a big salsa or salsa verde guy specifically, but that stuff, man, that stuff would be awesome. On I do enjoy me some spicy green some sauce. Tacos. Yeah. And then MP Cages and Exotics. Phil has an awesome rack from Sean. I have an awesome rack from Sean. Jake has awesome racks from Sean. The guy's all time. You guys got to get on it, man. Their craftsmanship is flawless. He, if you if you can dream it, he he can do it. Phil's a prime example of that. Legit. I, I came to him with an idea and he said, you know, that's a great idea. We're going to make it even better. And he did some homework and I have exactly, literally exactly what I wanted in my mind. And he made it happen in real life. Knocked it out of the park. 
knocked it out of the park. Because not only does it function the exact way you want it to, but it looks awesome. Oh, it looks fantastic. Fantastic. Of course, we're not biased. But No, but it's awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> so we will catch you all next week. Phil, are we going to smoke Saturday night? We can do Snakes and Stogies. We're going to smoke some cigars Saturday night. It's going to be episode 42 of Snakes and Stogies. Catch it live on YouTube and uh, the Herpeticulture Network Facebook page. Henry's trying to convince me to like somehow stream to Twitch. and Yeah, I man, he's all about it. I know, and I'm, I want to, but there's more programs and stuff involved, and I'm I'm kind of well, scared. Something first to look forward to. So, yeah, I'll look into it. But anyways, Snakes and Stogies Saturday night. It'll be live. Um, I work till 9, so it'll probably be like 9.30-ish or so that we get started, if that works for you. Perfect. And we will catch you all on the flippity. Thanks for listening, guys. Good night, Moon. Good night, Moon. <laughs>